Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Welcome back. Hey, everybody. This is Chris Malanfi, host of Hit Parade, Slate's podcast of pop chart history. Welcome to the bridge. Place that you laughed about. Well, the names have all changed since you hung around. That's Welcome Back by John Sebastian, a number one hit from 1976. As we told you in last month's hit parade, Sebastian, the former lead singer of the Love and Spoonful, wasn't even supposed to play the Woodstock Festival in 1969. For Sebastian, Woodstock was an accidental bridge between his career with the Love and Spoonful and his career as a solo artist, which eventually produced this chart-topping hit. And these mini-episodes bridge our full-length monthly episodes, give us a chance to catch up with listeners, and enjoy some hit parade trivia. This month, I'm pleased to introduce, as my co-host, my new producer for these mini-episodes, Asha Saluja. This is her first time behind the mic on Hit Parade The Bridge. So, Asha, welcome to The Bridge. Thanks so much, Chris. It's an honor to be here doing The Bridge with you. Well, it's an honor to have you. Um, so... You have been producing this show for us since last month. August was uh, your first Bridge episode. But I think you've been listening to the show for a while. That is true. I'm a huge fan. And in fact, I have a favorite episode that I want to tell you about. Oh, fantastic. The first episode that I had a total galaxy brain experience (laughs) listening to was the Madonna episode, the Veronica Electronica edition, because it bridged, pun intended, together to parts of my personal music history in a way that was really unexpected for me. Growing up, my mom was the musical educator of the house. She had really good and broad taste, and she taught me a lot of what I know. But my dad only liked one artist, and that was Madonna. Wow. 
He's a Madonna super fan. Exactly. He moved to the U.S. in the 80s and his brain sort of just imprinted on her and he didn't like any other music. (laughs) So obviously I had a lot of curiosity about her growing up. And uh, eventually once I started listening to music, I came to really respect her as like a pop star and an icon. Mm -hmm. And when I saw that there was a Madonna episode of Hit Parade, I was like, oh, cool. I'm going to learn something about the 80s and the time that my dad moved here to the U.S. But you blew my mind because instead we talked about Madonna in the 90s and 90s electronica. So I'm from Miami, Florida, and I totally dabbled in the rave culture that was happening there. I went to Ultra Music Festival a few times in high school. Oh, wow. And the artists that you mentioned in that episode, like The Prodigy, The Chemical Brothers, and Moby... Those artists were far past their prime, but they were still headlining the festivals that I went to while I was in high school. Which, as you pointed out, Madonna was in direct dialogue with that scene. And that just really blew my mind because you took me from something that I thought of as like an artist my dad liked to the electronica that I imprinted on as a teenager and thought was so cool. Of course, the topic of our most recent full-length hit parade, if I may segue, is in the past for both you and me. I mean, the Woodstock Festival uh, predates my birth. I am certainly a middle-aged man, but I am not that old. And I do not remember Woodstock, not because I was there uh, and, uh, you know, sampled the brown acid, but because I was not born yet when Woodstock happened. So um, the Woodstock episode, researching this episode was... A lot of fun work for me, but, uh, you know, there were pieces of it that I already knew. There were parts of it that I had to get educated on. Yeah, I thought the framing of, like, where each artist was before and after Woodstock was really important and also really interesting because when we think about about festivals now, it's so rare for a festival to put an artist on the map. It happens more the other way around. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, think about that poster that comes out every year when they announce the Coachella lineup. And right. everybody's looking at, you know, not only who are the headliners, right, whether it's a, a Beyonce or a Kanye West or a, pick your favorite rock band, a Team Impala, let's say. Let But also where the other bands all fall in the, you know, hierarchy of bands. And there was absolutely a hierarchy of bands at Woodstock, as I point out in the episode. You can even, if you want to Google it, folks, you can even find out how much everybody at Woodstock was paid. I allude to it briefly in the episode, but everything from what, you know, new acts like Sha Na Na were paid. Versus, uh, you know, what a headliner like The Who or Blood, Sweat and Tears were paid. You made me so very happy. Um, You know, and new people like Santana, uh, who I, you know, left at number one uh, for the very end of the episode. You know, Santana were the big discovery of the festival and they were paid less than a thousand dollars. Carlos Santana, you know, earned a few hundred dollars for the gig, but he also earned himself a lifetime of renown by wowing the crowd at the festival and he picked the best possible moment to release his first album. So an artist that Woodstock maybe could have put on the map but didn't quite is a fave of mine, Joni Mitchell. Oh, sure. Uh, And I love that anecdote from the episode about how she 
didn't go because of her manager recommending that she not. Yeah, well, and I didn't even go into all the detail I could have because I kind of shoehorned Joni Mitchell, who's a favorite of mine, too, into the discussion of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young because of her connection to those guys. She was dating Graham Nash at the time. She wrote the song Woodstock that wound up on the first Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young album. We are but the irony of Woodstock, as I pointed out in the episode, is that Joni Mitchell did not go to Woodstock. And, you know, if you want to go a little further down the rabbit hole, I I find this interesting. Specifically, the reason she was told not to go to Woodstock that weekend in August 1969 by her manager and purportedly the person who told her not to go was David Geffen. So not just any manager, but like kind of the uber manager of, you know, rock and roll at the turn of the 60s and 70s. She was told not to go because she had a date to be on the Dick Cavett show. And so once again... However, the taping of the Dick Cavett show didn't happen until, I believe, the Monday after the Woodstock Festival. Basically, word had gotten around that the Woodstock Festival was so clogged with traffic that weekend, they were afraid that if Joni Mitchell went to upstate New York, she wouldn't make it back. And the only tragedy of this is that if you watch the footage of this Dick Cavett interview in August of 1969, sitting there on the stage with Joni Mitchell are several performers who did go to Woodstock and they made it back to New York City in time to tape Dick Cavett. Uh, we have two, these are the Jefferson Airplane, should you be so foolish as to have just joined us and Joni Mitchell, and we have two people who just happen to be passing through the studio uh, looking for a, a payphone that works in New York, and uh, they are Stephen Stills and David Crosby of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. So. Yes, the traffic was terrible and, you know, everything was a mess in Bethel, New York that weekend. But they did make it back in time for Dick Cavett. So it was really a missed opportunity for Joni Mitchell. It was fairly early in her career. It's not a guarantee that she would have made it onto the stage that night. But if she had, that could have been a real breakthrough moment for her. Because by, you know, summer of 69, she's only got a couple of albums in her catalog thus far. And she really hasn't had that big breakout hit. Songs like Big Yellow Taxi or Help Me, those are coming in the 70s. There are songs by her like uh, Both Sides Now, which had been a hit for Judy Collins in 1968. But Joni as an artist had really not had her breakthrough. So she really is kind of the missed opportunity of Woodstock. She, She very well could have had a breakthrough at Woodstock. That said, she did a really good job with Having Not Gone. That song that she wrote, Woodstock, is very convincing. It's chilling and super beautiful. Mm-hmm. We are stardust. We are and I felt a little betrayed to learn that she hadn't been and just sort of got the details from her boyfriend. But to go back to that Dick Cavett appearance, Based on the performers who showed up on TV and talked about their experience at Woodstock, it seems like everyone was aware, even in the moment, how sort of shining and golden and rare the experience they just had was. Did you consider that as a city, man? Saturday. How do you mean? Well, I mean, for instance, like about two nights ago, that place up there was the second biggest city in New York. Yeah. And had no violence. Yeah, and I think many of the happy memories of Woodstock are about just how improbable it was. It was a truly utopian experience, or to use the subtitle they gave the concert, it was an Aquarian experience. Where do you suppose Hendrix is? Asleep. Asleep. 
So before we leave the topic of Woodstock, I thought that this might be a good time to do some listener mail because this one letter that a fan wrote back in February in response to the Credence Clearwater Revival show feels really applicable to the Woodstock episode as well. And so I just wanted to share it. Dear Chris, I haven't ever written a fan letter to a podcaster, but there's a first time for everything. I'm 65, grew up in the Bay Area. Credence was definitely the soundtrack of my high school years, and your show brought all of that flooding back. The airplane track also brought back a particular party and a particular girl. I remember having big arguments with a neighbor kid about whether Credence or The Who were a better band. In my defense, he was an actual musician, and at the time, only Happy Jack was getting airplay. Didn't compare to Proud Mary. Anyway, thanks for all your deep dives. Sincerely, John Wren, proud Slate Plus member. Fantastic. Thanks, John. Um, I am enormously flattered by that letter and by the direct reminiscences uh, of somebody who was there in 1969. I'm glad somebody caught the Easter egg that I threw into the Credence Clearwater Revival episode back in February of a song from Surrealistic Pillow, the smash album by the Jefferson Airplane in the summer of 67, particularly the song that we played in that uh, Credence Clearwater Revival episode, uh, an airplane song called She Has Funny Cars. Uh, is just this wonderful example of the kind of psychedelic rock that was starting to come out of the Bay Area and the West Coast in general. I knew that it would be meaningful to a certain segment of listeners. I'm actually a pretty big fan of that Jefferson Airplane album myself. So uh, thank you so much, John, and thank you for uh, your reminiscences and your compliments for the show. I'm so glad that you're enjoying it. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Now comes the time in Hit Parade the Bridge where we do some trivia. And joining us on the line is Steve from Fort Lauderdale. Steve, are you there? I am. Fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I understand from Asha that you are an 80s pop expert. Is that right? Oh, expert is is such a detailed word um <laughs> you know i'm i'm it's it's definitely my the my go-to decade you know it was uh, the first half of the 80s were high school the second half were college so that's uh, that's the home base for me i totally understand i am myself a, a person who came of age musically in the 80s <laughs> also uh if i may ask are you a slate plus member 
I am indeed a Slate Plus member. In fact, I, I, I'm pretty sure I was a member before uh, you started doing Hit Parade. Fantastic. Well, uh, as I like to remind folks at this point in the trivia, while this bridge episode is available to all Hit Parade subscribers, we only open our trivia rounds to Slate Plus members. So if you are a member and would like to be a trivia contestant, visit slate.com slash hit parade sign up. That's slate.com slash hit parade sign up. So, Steve, I know you know how this works, but briefly, we're going to ask you three trivia questions. The first is going to be a callback to our most recent full-length episode of Hit Parade, and the next two are going to be a preview of the next Hit Parade episode. And then at the end, this is always the fun part, you get to turn the tables on me and ask me a trivia question. So are you ready for some trivia? I am indeed. All right, fantastic. Here we go. Question one. Last month, we told you about Woodstock performers who did not have the best time at the festival. Some of them even asked to be taken out of the Woodstock film and soundtrack. Which of these performers who were on stage in August 1969 did not appear in either the Woodstock film or soundtrack? A. Janis Joplin. B. The Who. C. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Or D, Sha Na Na? Hmm. Well, um, I think I'm going to guess A, just because of all those artists, Janis Joplin seems like the most, uh, you know, iconically Woodstock. And I'm guessing that, uh, that there'd be some irony in the question. You guessed absolutely correct. The correct answer is A, Janis Joplin. Unhappy with her rather inebriated performance in the wee hours of Sunday morning, Joplin asked to be removed from the Woodstock film and soundtrack LP. While Neil Young, by the way, also refused to be filmed, his bandmates Crosby, Stills & Nash did appear in the film, and several songs of CSNY's did make the album. All right, you're one for one. Rock on. Uh, So are you ready for question two? Sure. All right, here we go. Question two. All of these albums generated a record seven top 10 hits on Billboard's Hot 100, but which one actually did better than the rest by producing seven top five hits? A. Michael Jackson, Thriller. B. Bruce Springsteen, Born in the USA. C. Janet Jackson, Rhythm Nation 1814. Or D. Drake, Scorpion. Oh, wow. Um, I don't know anything about Drake, so I'm not going to touch that one. Of those three, I'm just going to guess Michael Jackson, because when all else fails, the answer is usually Thriller. I'm sorry, the correct answer was C, his sister Janet Jackson with Rhythm Nation. Janet's brother Michael did set the record in 1984 when Thriller produced its seventh top 10 hit. That feat has been matched by Bruce, Janet, and Drake, but Janet's seven top 10 hits reached the highest position of any set of hits. They were all top five hits. All right, you're one for two. We've got one more question that, like question two, is a preview of next month's episode. Are you ready for question three? Sure. All right, here we go. Question three. 
of the seven top tens on Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation, four of them were number one hits, including three of the following. Which of these was not a Hot 100 number one hit? A. Miss You Much. B. Rhythm Nation. C. Escapade. Or D. Love Will Never Do Without You. I'm going to guess Rhythm Nation because that's probably the most challenging of those four songs. And you would be correct. The right answer is B, Rhythm Nation. The second single from the album after the number one Miss You Much, the album's title track peaked at number two. Its follow-up, the third single, Escapade, took Janet back to number one. And by the way, the only number one I didn't offer as a choice in this question was the album's sixth single, which was Black Cat. Fantastic. Two for three. That is awesome, Steve. Uh, I hope you are feeling rather proud of your trivia prowess. I am. I am. And uh, the... The Rhythm Nation track uh, is my favorite off that album. So. It's really an excellent song, and uh, it's even got a small Woodstock connection uh, because uh, a Woodstock performer, Sly and the Family Stone, were sampled on Rhythm Nation. Their song, Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself Again, is sampled on that song. Huh. Yeah. Go back and listen to it. It's, it's fun. It's kind of buried in the mix, but you can definitely, once you hear it, you can't unhear it. It's, uh, it's an interesting tidbit. Now, I understand that you have a trivia question for me, Steve. Is that right? I do. All right, lay it on me. Okay. Despite selling more copies than any other album that year, Rhythm Nation 1814 was not nominated in any major category at the Grammys in 1990. However, it did earn Janet four nominations in minor categories, one of which she won. Which of the following Grammys did Janet Jackson win in 1990? And your choices are A, Producer of the Year, non-classical, B, Best Instrumental Arrangement Accompanying Vocalist, C, Best Music Video, Long Form, or D, Best Female R&B Vocal Performance? Huh, that's a really good question. All right, I am going to guess that it's either A or D. I don't know why, but I have a good feeling based on what I know of Rhythm Nation that it got one of those. And I think... I think Janet may have been a co-producer on Rhythm Nation, so I'm going to guess A, producer of the year, non-classical. You have guessed incorrectly. Darn it. <laughs> the uh, the correct answer is C, best music video, long form. Oh, wow. Uh, Janet was nominated in all of the categories mentioned, but that's the only award she actually won. However, she broke a record with her nomination for producer of the year. It was the first time ever that a woman was nominated in that category. To this day, no woman has ever won a Grammy for Producer of the Year. Which is a travesty, but the one small consolation for me is that I did remember there was something unusual about that nomination that year, and I just forgot that she didn't actually win it. Uh, so I, I at least had an inkling of what was going on there, but I did get it wrong. You stumped me. Uh, so congratulations on your fantastic trivia record here today, Steve, because you got two out of three of your questions right and you stumped me. So nice job. I really want to thank you for being a part of Hit Parade the Bridge. This was a real treat. I, it Literally, Hit Parade is my favorite podcast. It's uh, I look forward to it every month. Well, that means the world to me. Thank you so much, Steve. 
That was a tough one, huh, Chris? You kind of knew the answer? Yeah. Uh, no, I, I took the L on that one, and uh, it was fair and square. And good for Steve. It sounded like he was actually really familiar with each track on Rhythm Nation. And even though he didn't know where that second half of the trivia round was going to go, he jumped right in and kind of understood what we were talking about. So with that, I'm really excited to hear that we're going to be talking about Janet Jackson next month. Can you tell us what we have to look forward to? We are indeed going to be talking about Janet because September is the 30th anniversary of the Rhythm Nation album. It came out in September 1989. Yes, folks, it's that old. Um, and it's a, a legitimately great album. It's a seminal album, not just for Janet, uh, but, you know, artists and critics cite its blend of pop, R&B, and even hip-hop, uh, hip-hop production styles, um, as really innovative for its time. And so many artists, everyone from Beyonce to TLC, has cited it as a predecessor and an influence on their work. It has a chart legacy as well, which is strong and possibly underrated because by some measures, as I indicated in one of those trivia questions, it's the biggest hit generating album of all time. Uh, it scored seven top 10 hits and they were all top five hits, uh, which no other album has equaled. Uh, and there's even, as we'll talk about in the full length episode, the possibility that there could have been an eighth single, which would have given Janet an all time record all to herself. Just have to tune in at the end of the month and hear our full-length episode to hear uh, the story of Rhythm Nation and the story of Janet Jackson's amazing career. Well, Asha, I hope you and all of our listeners enjoy that episode, which will be coming in just a couple of weeks. And I want to thank you for producing Hit Parade the Bridge and joining me for this episode. Uh, it was great having you in front of the mic. Thanks, Chris. It was so much fun and an absolute honor. And by the way, before we sign off, one last reminder. If you're listening to this Bridge episode on Friday, September 13th, and you happen to be in New York City today, please join me tonight at 6.30 p.m. at the Metropolitan Museum of Art as part of their Met Friday. Friday's series and their acclaimed exhibition, Play It Loud, Instruments of Rock, which, by the way, I've seen and it's amazing. I'll be talking about this Woodstock episode of Hit Parade that we just put out, and they're even showing a restored print of the Woodstock film, and it's all free with museum admission. So that's tonight at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. For Hit Parade the Bridge, I am Asha Saluja, Operations Manager of Slate Podcasts. And I'm Chris Malanfi. Keep on marching on the one. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.